Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen to? You know, Spotify, Anchor, Apple, etc., etc. How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Who doesn't love free? And ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. That's right. Free platform, free sponsorship. What more could you ask for? So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it, etc., go to anchor.fm slash start, anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. Once again, that's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Please get started. It's all love. This is a great space for the creative Anchor podcast. Once again, that's anchor.fm slash start. Uh, thanks all the listeners for uh, tuning in. And Mrs. Wright, can you go ahead and just uh, reintroduce yourself and uh, in, your, in your business, we'll go from there. Wonderful. First of all, me, it's definitely a pleasure to always have the opportunity to speak about mental health and speak about what I do in my journey. Um, as you stated earlier, I am Natasha Wright. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am the owner and lead clinician at Heart to Heart Counseling located in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Wow, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So can you, can you talk about the environment out there? Can you talk about the, uh, the, the counsel that you get when you go to Heart to Heart? You know, is it, uh, is it friendly? Is it welcoming? You know, is it a, a no judgment zone? So can you just talk about uh, the, the counsel and, and, you know, their support? Absolutely. So uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut is an urban community um, with about 80% uh, minority. And I am located right in the, in the heart of an urban community. So I believe um, in bringing culturally competent um, and culturally aware counseling. So when people come uh, or first come heart to heart counseling, it is done in a sensitive manner, understanding that mental health is something that is stigmatized so when they come, it's a friendly smile. It's really a warm and welcoming experience. I definitely know um, that some people are afraid to come to counseling to share some of the most private thoughts and feelings and events that have happened in their life. And so meeting a friendly face kind of breaks the ice. The first session is generally the hardest. Just to say, here I am and I need help, that takes a big step. That's, it takes a lot, a lot of, um, you gotta put, and a lot of people that first that very first session is the icebreaker and what i generally tell people the very first session out the gate is counseling with me and working with me is you should be experienced just having a conversation with a good girlfriend or a good guy friend where it's unbiased um we just sit together and we kind of talk about life issues it's not as if someone that you're ostracized for having issues we all have issues of course. The um, most specifically, the African-American black community's journey is very specific. It is complex and it is detailed. 
and it cannot be um, understood using regular mainstream models. I believe that the models that we use, we first have to understand where we come from, understand the communities in which we live, and understand some intersectionalities of the people that we serve. I, for one, am an African-American woman. Um, so that puts me both race and gender-wise, that's an intersection. So I need to be understood at one intersection of being Black and a female. And if you can't understand that at the very basis, then you can't understand me. Because then I add multiple complexities of being a mother, of being a therapist, of being educated. So there are different sexual sectionalities that needs to be understood before you can even help me. And if I can't find someone to understand that, then I'm already at a loss when it comes to clinical practice or mental health services. It's all about being able to relate to the therapist. Understand that when you walk in, it's already a power differential. It, it, it already is. The person, the client is seeking you for advice, some kind of guidance, a listening ear, whatever their presenting issue is, they're seeking you. So that's all you're already that's already a power differential. And if I show up to an appointment and I feel that you can't even relate to the first sentence coming out, there's no therapy without relationship or relatability. Because it will be the relationship that drives change. The relationship first has to be built on trust. Can I trust you for what I'm about to tell you? Can I further trust that you won't hurt me even the more by being biased or bringing your stereotypes in the room. There is an old saying, you know, in the urban community, real recognizes real. It's the same thing in a mental health session. If I come in with pretense and I feel like the person I'm talking to is like, mm, I may not return. So while I took that first step, and it is the first step to actually seeking services is making the phone call. That's an even major step that we sometimes bypass. Making the phone call. Because in that, before we even make the phone call, we've made up in our mind that we need help. And sometimes that takes years to even realize that we need help. I need, I'm dealing with something that my family or friends, I need outside help. And in the African-American community, we still hang our hat on what happens in the house stays in the house. So when you say help, you're breaking that uh, misnomer that's passed down, that has been instilled in you. So first of all, that's that conscious awareness that man, I got some issues and I need help. The next step, you pick up that phone, you make that call. That makes counseling or mental health or seeking out and breaking that cycle even more real. Then you actually show up. So you take all of your whole person and get to this appointment to show up to find someone that has bias, stereotypes, and it's on front street. It's just right out before you and you're like, this ain't it. Now, some people may not re-engage or try clinical services for a long time after that. So we as clinicians and practitioners have to be very, very careful that we're not giving off this, you got issues, and I'm gonna make your life better, because that's not it. We're here to partner. Like you, you spoke about normalizing. We don't know things are dysfunctional until we're exposed to different ways. 
because a lot of things that, that happens in our households were passed down from generation to generation to generation. So we learned this function and learned to be comfortable in it. And when you're exposed to different ways of living, it's like, oh shoot, something's wrong. Like you said, when you get in, in these cycles of I want better, I want to do better, but something internally keeps me tied to dysfunction. We have then been groomed to work and live in the dysfunction. And then it's like, but it doesn't serve us a purpose as we begin to grow. But what happens then when the dysfunction comes from our immediate family? We're tied to them. Relatives. These are the ones that raised us. They care for them. This is our crew. This is who we grew up with. There's memories and feelings attached, but they're dysfunctional and you're trying to break away. One of the hardest things is one, recognizing that the family relationships or your closest relationships may be toxic. And anything that's toxic makes you ill. So, and you want to break that cycle. And then what you call, what I call boundaries. You put up boundaries with people. You learn to say no without apologizing. You learn to not, right? You have to learn it because you have to unlearn and come to realize that I don't function anymore. So they may not change. They may not be ready to, but you need to change. So then how do I now say no to mom? How do I say no to dad? How do I say no to my sister? I mean, because in our communities, we are learned that we ride or die for family, but not if it's emotionally. It's draining us of everything that we have. I can't ride or die no more because I'm literally dying. And no trauma changes how we think, it changes our brain. Of our brain, therefore, and how if we changes how we think and it changes our DNA, we pass DNA from generation to generation. So your DNA is altered due to past generational trauma. So some of the, some of the things and the attitudes and um, proclivities that you may have come from past generations. You, until you get older and kind of realize who you want to become, you don't realize why you do some of the things you do. It really could come from mom. Mom may have trauma that was passed down from grandma. Grandma did it this way because something happened to her mom. And you know not of. You don't know any of it. You, this is how we do this. And until you get older and say, uh-uh, this, this doesn't work. Now, I don't even know why we do this, but the whole family does it. It's not until one person has an awakening, and it's really, and an awakening is really personal. I can't have an awakening from my mom. I can't have one from my siblings. It's something internal that's almost a tipping point that says enough is enough. I've got to figure this out because I want to do better. And when you have that awakening, once you do better, you can therefore change your next generation. But it's not until something awakens in you to say, this is not working. And then you have the courage to step out to seek help to change it. Because nine times out of 10, whatever you're seeking to change is greater than you and you do need assistance. You need help.
Mm. Okay. So my journey um, into clinical practice actually started back um, oh, in undergrad when I was, I went to the University of Bridgeport and my bachelor's is in human services. So going back years and years as a little girl, I came from a family um, that was rooted in social services. So my grandfather was a preacher. And I remember um, the missionaries, the mothers of the church and the women of the church would go into the communities. They would feed the homeless. They would um, offer clothing um, and food services. And they took care of one another in a very neighborly village kind of way. So I was raised to see that. And I saw it in action. So not only did I see it necessarily through the preach word, I actually saw it. I saw my grandmother and my grandfather feed the home. I saw all of it, give clothes and visit, visit the sick. I saw it. So growing up, that was kind of instilled in me. And then I decided to go to school um, for human services. And in my undergraduate program is when I knew, uh, like there was an awakening. A lot of um, the courses that I took was very reflective. Um, they wanted to know about you. Where did you come from? What was your background? And so the work actually began then where the layering, the peeling of the layers started to come out. And then I knew I want to help people on, on a different level, not just to meet their basic need, but clinically. I saw that there was a deficit in Bridgeport of black female clinicians. So I'm like, this is it. It was an awakening of there's a gap in services and I'm going to try my best to fill that gap. I'm going to try my, I'm going to go what I have to do to be a voice for the voices to say, this is what I missed through my process, but I'm going to be here for somebody else. So then I went and got my master's and then my license and then opened my private practice in the heart of Bridgeport so that it's accessible. So whether people need to drive and they need to catch the train, they need to do the bus, it's right in the metro area. I am located where people can get to me. I'm not on the outskirts. I'm not um, in the surrounding suburbs. I want it to be planted in Bridgeport. I want it to be able to provide the services for the people that need it. Right. Absolutely. 
I definitely agree. It, it would not, this journey that, I, that I'm on now is necessarily, it's not about me. It's about providing services to, to the people that need it, that want it. And it does not serve me to do all the work and say, yes, I'm gonna open up a private practice and I'm, people need to come to me. And I'm in a suburb off a bus route and I close at two o'clock in the afternoon. So <laughs> I have night and weekend hours. I know that people need to work. So I need, I know I need to have some night hours so they can come see me. I have Saturday hours where I know that people need to come see me maybe on a Saturday. I try to make myself as much as I can available to the people that I know that I have been called to serve. And I think it is a privilege to serve my community. I grew up in Bridgeport. So I grew up in, I, in all of the inner workings and I saw the need, like I said, when I was coming up. So I wanna be that. And there's, it benefits me not to move to a suburb off a bus route that's down a dark alley that's not accessible because the problem with finding culturally competent and aware services is access and use. It's twofold. First, I can't get to you. And then when I get to you, you're not culturally aware that I can't use you. So that's, it's like, right. So it's not just access, but it's and use. So I try to, I try to uh, spearhead that barrier because there's many barriers that um, black, the black community has to getting to mental health services, but I try to at least remove the ones that I can and make me and the service accessible to people. Right. 
I, I definitely a, a agree because one of the hardest practices that uh, we can do is that internal self-reflective work that at times when we can come to terms and say, mm, it ain't always them, this might be me. That is the hardest thing to do that to have that conversation with yourself to say, nah, nah, it ain't them. I think, yeah, something wrong, right? <laughs> because you'll keep entering the cycles. Now, if you want to be in denial, that's fine because I'm telling you, therapy is hard work. There's a lot of reasons. That's why most people don't do it. It's hard. It is hard to come to terms with dang. Yes. To come to dang when you shed a light on the truth. It's hard to break away from the truth and the truth that you may have learned 25 years, you've known 40 years, you've known 60 years, you've known all your life to be the truth and it's wrong. That's not, it's, it is me, it ain't them. This is the truth that you've told yourself, the truth that your family has told you, the truth that your community has instilled with you. This is how we do it. It's not. It's not. Thomas, you bring up something like tremendous, something of great thought and weight. The bottom line is everybody don't want to change. So we struggle with that. So while you have may have had an awakening and but your 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 circle, everybody don't want change. They're okay with status quo. And so then in us, if we keep engaging in the toxic circles and coming out with the same results, the hard question that needs to be asked is why do I keep engaging with people of the same caliber, of the same mindset? So that's a reflective question and half the time we just don't want to answer it. But there is something, because we can easily shine the light, they do this, they don't want to do this, they did this to me, but why are we still here? Because there's a void or something that's, there's a connection, there's something that we keep showing up. They sh they've shown us who they are. 
Why do we keep showing up for the disappointment, for the setbacks? The heartache, for the heartache. For how do, why do we keep showing up? They did it once, they did it twice, they did it five times, but we keep showing up. So the, the tables need to be, now it's not them because we know who they are. At that point, we don't know who we are. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe that a lot of disappointment stems from putting expectations on people that they are unaware of and emotionally unable to meet. So we... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of disappointment stems from putting expectations on people that are unavailable. So even emotionally unavailable and they're un- unbeknownst to them, they cannot meet it. So we show up and we say, I'm a friend to this person. He or she is going to be a friend to me. And then you put these expectations on a label that you've put on them. So you say, oh, that's my friend. They got my back. Well, when have they ever shown you that they had your back? So you put this expectation on someone and they can't meet it. <laughs> But then you're disappointed. But you're disappointed because of it. But you, we, right? So we put that expectation unbeknownst to them, never had a conversation about them being friends and the expectation of what we expect in relationships, whether it's an intimate relationship or a friend relationship, a a family, a familial relationship. It's like, hmm, I expect this. We don't verbalize it, but when we don't get it, we hot mad and we disappointed and our feelings are hurt.
You're We put all of our expect we expect them to. They can't. And, and, and I believe it goes back to a need to satisfy. I think when we put our trust, um, time, emotional support into others, I think we're really giving off what we as individuals need. We want someone to see us, so we see someone else. Um, and then, so what we usually want from someone is what we need. I want love, I'm gonna give love. I want somebody to be right or die for me, so let me go the extra mile for them. So then if somebody come back, if I need somebody to go for me, you know, I've already put in the work. Well, they can't, but usually it's a reflection of what we need. We have been groomed. I mean, we're going back to slavery times to put people's needs before our own. So which we should, I, I, think, I think to some degree, it's a part of that village mentality, but then there's a cutoff that when we go so far and we keep putting people and we reaching out to people, that's a reflection of our need and a void that's in our life. Right. Absolutely. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
Oh God, yeah. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree when you say that um, you can't choose your family and everybody knows that you can't choose your family, but you can choose your peace. So and when I say that, your family will be your family, but you have to choose your peace. So, no, you can't choose your family, and I don't think that no that any of us. I, I'm not, you know, here to say that we were born into the right, the wrong family. I think God did what He did, and we're here for a reason, and we're connected by blood, right? To make sure by blood we're related to who we're supposed to be related to, right? But with every family come some little toxic moments and some toxic relationship and generational trauma and generational trouble. And so we all have it. However, at the end of the day, I can't choose my family, but I can sure choose peace. And if peace is not connected to some family relationships, they've got to live in the outer courts because in this inner circle, I have to have peace. That comes as, that's such a journey because if we were raised in dysfunction and we have begun to normalize dysfunction, pulling away and establishing peace is traumatic for people because you first find your voice, first you find what you want. Yeah, because some people have learned, some people can't live without chaos and they, they're attracted to it. If they're not attracted to it, they create it. It's a, Right, it's people that create it. It's like you always got, <laughs> but that's the life that they live. They live that. They crave it. They can't live in peace. So we're not only trying to 
changing a lifestyle. We're talking about changing a mindset first. And that's hard work. Because in that hard work of creating peace, if it's your mom, dad, siblings, your best cousin, you know, your best girl, good girlfriend, whatever it is, to say no to that person, that creates emotions. And sometimes that's emotions that you don't necessarily want to deal with. So it's like, oh, I'll just, I'll just, I'm just gonna keep right because you have an attachment. These attachments are just not fly by night. They're generational attachments until an awakening happens. And it's like, but I can't live like this. I don't want to continue to do this. But I also don't know how to stop. That's the process. That's where somebody need to come in and say, you know, you need an unbiased person to get it all out, to give you an honest opinion and to sit down and create a plan, a lifestyle change. This, as I stated in the beginning, some of the issues that we face are bigger than us. They've been around longer than us. They overcome us because that's how we have these cycles of the same behavior with the same outcome. Until someone says, enough is enough. And I'm gonna shift the trajectory of my family. It might not be with my mom and dad and past generation, but if I have kids, we're not gonna do this. They gonna learn this way. And all it takes, one person to say, I'm not doing this anymore. And you can shift. Absolutely. believe um personally when you when you speak about forgiveness forgiveness is not for the other person it is for us we may think that by forgiving someone we're letting them off the hook we're um we're being easy on them we're not giving them a consequence for what they did in reality unforgiveness weighs us down we're harboring all of these ill feelings internally that can manifest in so many different ways. It can be anger, it can be high blood pressure. It that All that anger and emotion that we have inside, it's gonna come out sooner or later. And it may not even come out on the person that it's intended for. So we should forgive and we should forgive fast because we burden ourselves down with unforgiveness. One. Your second question was um, creating goals um, when you come into therapy. One of the first things at the first appointment I ask um, because for me, I look at the end from the beginning. So I ask whoever is sitting in front of me, what do you want this to look like? What is your goal for coming here? And some may be, I just want better relationships. I want to be able to better express myself. That's fine. So I just need a place to talk. I need somebody to listen to. But in the end, when it's all said and done, what do you want to happen? So I take that and sometimes we have to work through it. 
sometimes in the first session, they may not know. And three, four sessions in, when they unload what they've been carrying to say, this is what I want to happen. And then I begin to create a plan to make it happen. And then I, and I leave them with, it's like taking a road trip. You are the driver. I'm the passenger. I'm here just to give you some company and support along your journey. I may tell you to take a left. You take a left if you want. I'm here to coach. I don't give answers. I'm here to make aware. I don't give answers. I'm here to add clinical insight, but I don't give answers. <laughs> right. collective work to unveil whatever it is to unveil. I, I reveal layers. I, believe, I, I bring to light behaviors. I make you aware of decisions that you may be unconsciously unaware of that you're making. I bring them to your consciousness. I bring them to your consciousness. Like, mm, do you see a pattern? They say no. I'm like, well, there's a pattern because you did this, 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 and this. I highlight and you drive and I'm along for the journey. And that's all therapy with me is about. I just want to ride with you on the journey. That's it. That's for you. I don't give answers. Absolutely. Absolutely, I will say this, internal conflict will always, and I mean always, produce external chaos. Always. That internal conflict will always produce external chaos. It starts from the inside out. Absolutely. That's right.
Absolutely. Sure. So um, private practice is heart-to-heart counseling located at 1000 Lafayette Boulevard in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Telephone number is 203-632-9706. Social media is at um, heart-to-heart counsel for Instagram and Facebook is the same, heart-to-heart counseling. I definitely look forward um, to being back into explaining or speaking with anyone on mental health topics, especially an urban community. And you can find me at the web at www.heart2heartcouncil.com. Thank you. Have a great day.
Will I ride? Will I ride? Yeah. This ain't no podcast, it is a broadcast. Yeah. Yo, this the smartest and dumbest you ever heard. Intelligent and ignorant, you heard it first. Sipping on this brown with a brown skin. Cognac and caramel skins with time beard. Who you love, who you hate? Well, let's talk about it. The hottest topics, and best believe we ain't going gothic. Hotter than the tropics, you looking forward, you know we got it. See the bigger picture, no microscopic. We the livest, know you tuned in. Yeah, we know you tuned in, nothing but a G thing. All we missing is juice and gin, tying up the loose ends. We ain't asked for your two cents. Special guests every single day, and still no new friends. Calm down, youngin', I know you see that we running. I promise that this ain't nothing compared to what's really coming. I'm Dre, I ain't talking 3000, I'm talking drumming off the glass when I dunk it. It's geese, just say you love it. Uh, this that ain't the red issue, like, yeah. Getting G on the mic, one, two, one, two. This that ain't the red issue, like, you know, sports, social commentary, women in life, yeah. This that ain't the red issue, like, uh huh. Getting G on the mic, one,